Hello and welcome to Collision Cast, Fenderbender's official podcast, helping collision repair shop operators make money, save money, and work smarter. I'm Paul Hodowanik, staff writer for Fenderbender, and I hope everyone has had a fantastic new year. They had a fantastic holiday. We are excited for another year of podcasts, another year of magazines going out here in 2022 at Fenderbender. And before we jump into all that, I wanted to take some time to reflect on 2021 and our year of podcasting. Uh, So this episode is going to be a compilation of a few of our top interviews of the year. So we're going to get three interviews here. We may do another one of these next week with more because we've had tons and tons of great interviews, but these are a combination of one of some of the interviews that we thought have been the best, some that have been the most downloaded, the most listened to, and some that you guys have suggested have been your favorites of the year. So yes, we're going to talk to three people today. I will intro each one as they come up. So first, we have Dustin Caldwell. He was back on the podcast in April. He is the owner of Old Dominion Collision in Oregon. And Dustin uh, chats with Matt Hudson, our digital editor. He discusses the decision behind his business becoming a Tesla-approved body shop. I know that is a hot topic for everyone. So he talks about his investment and how that program differs from other certification programs. Enjoy. Tell me, tell me a little bit about before you were Tesla certified, uh, what your experience uh, at the shop mm-hmm. with electric vehicles were and kind of how you started getting into that realm. Well, you know, we had probably half a dozen or so that we had worked on. And honestly, we were like, these things are, are not the easiest to, to process because, you know, you don't, there's not a, there's not a, a supply chain for them, right? You know, you buy a Toyota, I call the Toyota dealer and I get everything I need. Well, Tesla, you call the Toyota or the Tesla service center and you don't get an answer <laughs> because that's not how they're designed. And you fire off an email and there's a very slow response. And this has, you know, been probably three years ago when we started this process. And it was kind of a funny story. We started out like having conversations around the idea of like just saying no to Tesla because we, every time we'd work on one, we get, get our... Uh, I won't say that Uh, we would end up (laughs) in a bad spot. Um, We'd learn a lot and like, boy, these are not easy to work on. I mean, they're not hard like they're any other car. It's just the overall like availability of information and all that wasn't as easy to come by. And, um, and so I was away on a business trip and I got a call from one of my managers that the the local Tesla mobile service tech had stopped in and was curious if we were interested in becoming Tesla certified. And I just immediately said yes, without even thinking. And afterwards I was like, oh boy, what did I just ask for? (laughs) But as we started down the path and learning, it's like, oh, wow, these guys, there's a lot of very, very powerful resources that they provide the shops once you're certified and the further we dug in, the further it was like, oh, this is a no brainer. And then the idea of being first to market with it in our area, looking at the territory, you know, there's only five in the entire state of Oregon that are certified shops. It's like, okay, we have to take action. And, and I'm just so grateful. I immediately said yes and didn't think twice about it. And so go from one day to saying, we're just going to say no more to hundred percent, let's do this. And it's just been super, uh, super fun uh, to learn about them and, and be involved. So, yeah, uh, I'm guessing, you know, the shop's been in business for so many years. You've, you've gone through other OE certifications in the past. Um, I was curious if there was anything different about, you know, getting a Tesla certification and, and what that might be. 
Our only other certification prior was Volvo. Um, and that was a real simple, easy process, really. Um, you know, we've been in business since 1973. Um, and my dad started the business, then my mom bought it from him when they divorced. And then my mom retired six years ago uh, after you know, we were business partners for about 10 before she retired. And so, you know, it was very new, just the whole process. Um, you know, the, the thing that I really appreciated about the onboarding process, as I think back, was the gentleman that I worked with was Joseph, um, forget his last name. He just was really available and walked me through every little step. Any question I had, he was there to answer tons of resources. Um, you know, it was it, because it was so new, I didn't know what to know or what to even ask. And he was very, very, very helpful in making sure that happened very seamlessly. It took some time. It probably took three or four months by the time we got everything put together as needed. But the part I really also appreciated was it was everything was virtual and this is pre COVID. Um, you know, so we did everything. We just walked around the shop with on a FaceTime call and I showed him the shop and showed him all the equipment. And so it was pretty, pretty straightforward, really pretty easy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything about working on a Tesla or maybe even the EV space in general that uh, has been a big departure from the traditional work you guys have done? I think the combination of EV and aluminum um, has been, I mean, we've done some aluminum like repair panel work, but mm -hmm. basic stuff. Um, but when you factor in the steps necessary to protect the vehicle from the repair process, you know, especially with a high voltage battery, you know, learning all the subtle nuances with that, making sure you follow the steps to the letter, um, having all those uh, SOPs documented so that everybody knows what they're doing. Um, and then just, you know, one thing I think that I wish every manufacturer did that Tesla does is the step-by-step -step directions they provide for everything that you do on one of their cars. It's not a hundred percent, but I'd say it's probably 90% of the processes, repair procedures that are necessary are step by step. Like I think about like when I was a kid and I still to this day build Legos and like you open your Lego book and it's like step one, you need these pieces. Step two. I mean, that's how Tesla kind of presents the information mm -hmm. and it's like, wow, this is, I have, we had a car way to put a wire harness in. It's step-by-step -step directions on how to put a wire harness in. Like no other manufacturer does that. And, and then all the things that you need in that process, like that are one-time use fasteners, you know, they tell you what you need. And so you can build that up front and you have a real clear repair plan on how to fix their car. There's no, there's very little surprises you find along the way where any other manufacturer, it's a little less uh, comprehensive, I guess, is the word I would use. I mean, there's great information out there, but the detail that they put into it um, with pictures that are just so like to spot on. And so um, building that into our process. And then I guess after it got built in is the desire for other, this want from others to have the same process is kind of like, I would prefer to work on a Tesla because there's, they're just easier to work on once you understand what's necessary versus some of these other manufacturers, you end up with like a lot of guesswork still, a lot of time spent researching. So once you, once the, the customers in your market realize that you are Tesla certified, you know, it's pretty well known throughout uh, the community there. Uh, mm -hmm. Is there any, are there any residual, you know, other brand EVs that people are bringing into your shop or, or directing your way, like from, you know, other OEs uh, that uh, they just kind of start seeing you as an, uh, an EV shop? 
Not yet that I've heard. Um, I have seen people, I mean, we have, you know, the Tesla uh, certification branded on our building because mm-hmm. they allow that. And people, I've heard people like, oh, they're Tesla certified. That's great. And they're driving a Honda or a Toyota. And so to me, it's like, there's this standard, like, oh, if they can work on a Tesla, then they definitely can work on my car. Right? kind of that intrinsic value that we get from it. But from an EV standpoint, not necessarily, we don't have a lot in our market yet. Um, you know, I think that's coming. I think we'll see more of it in time. Um, now I've been more in an ownership role. I haven't been involved in a lot of the day-to-day in the last probably six months. So that could be some stories that I haven't heard yet, um, from my management team, but, uh, that's the hope is that that has a residual effect across the market. Um, but that belief that, Hey, they can handle Tesla. They should be able to handle my car. I think that plays out for sure, which I think is a lot of value. All right. Next up, we have DJ Mitchell. Uh, DJ is a frequent guest of this podcast, especially if you've been listening for a long time. He has tons and tons of experience both acquiring and selling shops. He discusses how he goes about selecting shops for acquisition and how you can bring new shops into the fold. And if you're looking to sell, some tips for how to make yourself enticing. Today, we're talking about rebranding and bringing a new shop into the fold, a new shop acquisition. So let's say you are looking at a potential shop. Are you actively thinking how well will this facility fit my brand or are there more important things to consider? Well, the first thing we always think of is, you know, are we going to be able to make money with the shop? You know, sometimes they're, you know, may have a really nice location, a really nice building, uh, really good people, but there may be 10 or 12 other shops in the area. Um, so that's the first thing we always think of is the, is the shop going to make money if we buy it? Um, once we, uh, get there, then we would think, okay, so if we think we can make money with it, you know, how much money is it going to cost us to make it look the way that we want it to look? Um, we've done a pretty good job in the past kind of making things that should, things that don't look as good as they should look really good. Um, Mm -hmm. my dad is awesome at that. Um, we'll look at stuff sometimes and he'll look at me and say, do you see it? And I'm like, no, but I know you'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) So after that, then, um, so we would start to consider like, how are we going to run it? What more work is this going to add for us? What problems could we potentially have with this? And, you know, should we do it? And yeah. uh, the should we do it thing, normally, normally they're just being a yes. If, the, uh, if you wait for the right time to add a new shop, you can always find a reason not to do it. I'm mm-hmm. too busy with this or this is getting ready to come up or so if, if it meets the, you know, first kind of criteria, are we going to make money? Can we make it look right? Uh, then we, then we pretty much do it. <clears throat> Got it. Yeah. So let's say it's over, everything's in order. Is that first order of business getting the paint and making it look the way you want it to look or what should people be considering? <clears throat> the first thing we do is we really want to meet the employees, meet the, the team, the staff, um, everybody that's there. Um, we normally try to do that way before we close mm-hmm. because we want to know once I get in there, you know, is, you know, is there anybody that hates change? 
who <laughs> may not make it through the transition? Is there anybody that's scared? Um, you know, is there anybody with a bad attitude? Um, is there anybody in the wrong spot? Um, so we really like to meet the staff early, as early as we can. So that way we can kind of start planning on what we need. So, you know, we may go and we may walk through and, and talk to the office and think, well, you know, this person is, you know, kind of old school. Maybe they're not going to fit how we want to do things. <clears throat> you know, let's keep that in the back of our mind in case something was to come up, we could be ready. Um, you know, we may, may get in and, you know, they got somebody writing who should be, uh, you know, doing parts, somebody doing parts that should be, you know, at the front desk or whatever. So, uh, we like to meet the staff, go back, talk to the technicians, make sure they're on board, uh, answer all the questions they always have. Uh, you know, when are you going to sell us next? Is always one we get. Um, you know, are you going to cut my pay? Are you going to give me a raise? Are you going to bring in your own people? Um, those are, those are the ones you get all the time. So after we, after we meet with the staff, um, you know, answer any questions they have, kind of put their minds at ease, um, get our ideas together, uh, then we would start figuring out what we're going to do to make it look the way we want it to look. Uh, we may do something temporary at first, you know, paint the outside, put up a banner. Um, well, we do a bigger plan to kind of figure things out. We actually just did that at our Tigersville location. We got in, uh, we put a banner up, painted the outside of the building, uh, and then kind of figured out how we're going to do it to make it, you know, as good as we can end up making it. Uh, we actually had the office kind of displaced for a while working in little service rider booths uh, within the shop so we could build the office the way we wanted it. Retaining established employees ever a priority or is it strictly a case-by-case -case basis? Do you want to retain some familiar We'd employees? We'd like to keep everybody who's working there working there. Um, right. You know, a, a lot of big companies, I think, you know, may not – you know, realize the importance of that, but you didn't buy that shop. You bought the shop because it made money and because it's a good location, but it made money because of the people that are in it. Mm -hmm. So we want to try to keep everybody there who wants to be there uh, working with us. In terms of working with existing customers or just folks in the community, you know, how do you kind of put the message out that, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to build on what this part of the community, this shop was already doing. Yeah. <clears throat> the, one of the first things we do to get our name out there is advertise in Merritt Island. We came in, we did some TV spots. We'll try to join the local chamber of Com chamber of commerce. And, uh, you know, we try to find out what existing customers are there now. Like, you know, are they doing work for the sheriff's department? Did, uh, do they fix the mayor's car? Uh, something like that, you know, at Melbourne, for example, one of the technicians, uh, his wife works for the mayor. So, you know, we kind of, you know, send a message through them. Um, uh, the other thing we try to do to let everybody know kind of what we're about is just making the place look good. You know, mm -hmm. getting that activity, cleaning up something, making it, you know, look better helps everybody in the area. Nobody wants to drive past an eyesore body shop every day. So when we come in and we make it pretty, uh, it goes a long way with the local people. All right, and for our last interview of today's podcast, we talk with Travis Mann. Travis was way back, or was on way, way back in January. He is a damage analysis expert at DB Orlando Collision Center. So Travis takes you through that title, what that means specifically at his shop, and he discusses how creating repair plans can improve cycle times and help 
your shop achieve better results. Mentioning your title, Damage Analysis Expert. It's different than what a lot of folks think about when it comes to writing estimates, writing accurate estimates. Could you tell us how you came upon that title and why? Sure, yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't even really like to use the word estimate anymore because, you know, these vehicles nowadays, they're, they're just so far advanced comparatively to where they were, you know, 10 years ago in the industry. I mean, even in the past five years, they've just advanced exponentially throughout the whole time. Um, you know, where, where it kind of comes in the, in the chain from being a, an estimator to more of like a damage analysis expert role um, is basically in your documentation and your research. I, I would probably say 75 to 80% of the time that I'm writing an estimate or, or repair plan, as we like to call it here at DB Orlando, um, is basically just researching the manufacturer's procedures. Um, you know, there, there's a ton of things in these procedures now that are just 100% necessary for a proper and safe repair. Um, that, that's really where the whole shift is going here in the industry is, is more along, um, uh, rather than estimating um, and more creating an actual accurate repair plan. Part of the problem, it seems, is the vehicles advance more is built into that word estimation. It kind of implies a lack of accuracy. Right, exactly, exactly. That's where we like to be is, is more of a repair plan, you know, so that that way it's less about, you know, we're, we're guessing or estimating and we're more, you know, this is the actual repair plan per the manufacturer. Um, you know, that, that, that goes all the way down into, you know, with the consumer. Um, prior, you know, we, we had consumers, they didn't really, you know, the, all these ADOS systems or advanced driver assistance systems weren't really a, a, a thing. Nowadays, these people, they're driving vehicles that are essentially a computer. So it's really kind of changed that whole, that estimating process into more of a repair planning and being accurate in what calibrations are necessary. You know, if there's any one-time use fasteners, um, a lot of manufacturers, they have these fasteners nowadays that are one-time use only. So uh, for instance, a lot of these center pillar trims they, they have a one-time use fastener on them and it's due to airbag and safety. So if you're not following these proper procedures and you're not finding out and determining exactly what's necessary for the manufacturer, you're potentially putting your consumer at risk un unknowingly. Seems that procedures can be updated. They can change quickly. That's another reason to get in there every time and read those and stay up to date, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of the things um, I'm, I'm trying to think of one that comes to mind, uh, there, was, there was a Tundra. Um, I believe it was, um, I believe it was like last year. Um, they had a Toyota Tundra that the procedure for actually putting a bedside on the truck changed five times within that year. Hmm. So this isn't something like that you can simply, you know, pull the procedures for one time and say, oh yeah, no, we're good. We got it. We know what to do on this one. It's, it's a constant learning curve uh, to make sure that we're actually following these procedures and not putting your consumer at risk. Yeah, this is no longer, I know how to do a bumper job because I've done one a thousand times. Exactly, exactly. How do you stay up to date? I mean, it sounds time consuming or is it just a constant accumulation of that knowledge? Is it building habits so what, what we've done here is we've created a process. So, uh, you know, just like your manufacturers create a process for building the car, they've now created a process for repairing the car. So we've, we've followed in with them on that and basically created our own process to ensure that 
the entire process is documented and, and performed. So it's it, what's happened is because of that process and us implementing it, it, it's basically freed up the time because you're not looking for this here, looking for that there. there there's a very strict process associated with it. So as far as the process is concerned, I mean, it, it goes all the way from when the vehicle comes in to reviewing the procedures with the technicians um, to reviewing the procedures through the next technician. We're also doing what's called a, or what we call as a customer consultation. Um, and we're bringing the customer in. We're providing them all of these documents. Um, now COVID has been here. Uh, we're not doing it so much in-house anymore. We're doing a little bit more of like a Zoom call like you and I are doing now. Um, and, and that's just kind of helped create a, 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 a safety net, I guess you could say, for, for the consumer. You know, the, the consumer is driving an A-rated safety vehicle. And they probably purchased it because of that. Why the vehicle's rated A safety? I'd probably say 75 to 80% of your consumers don't know. But when you bring these calibrations and show them the, AD the ADOS systems, show them the NPA ratings of the steels and the certain locations of the vehicle, that, that basically helps them understand why their vehicle is rated that way and why these proper and safe repairs are still necessary. All right, and that will do it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to some of our best interviews from this year. I think we are going to have more next week because there are just so many, so many I had to parse through to find just three, just three from all year. So we will do another uh, snippet of these next week before we get rolling with our 2022 Slater podcast. Enjoy your week, everyone. <laughs>